uh, this week's episode of Rebel City Podcast. Um, this week's episode is um, an extraordinary gentleman called Michael Byrne. Michael runs a blog and a social media platform uh, called Poems from a Mod. Um, I'm going to do a lot of this uh, let it speak for itself. Actually, I think that Michael's an incredible guy um, and I'm thanking him again for coming in and telling us his story, um, his experiences with uh, PTSD, um, some of his life experiences and the recovery and how he's done that. So I'm going to let him speak for himself, but as the new tradition is, um, sponsoring the podcast with a positive mental health action. Um been thinking about <clears throat> what I wanted this week's TBE and it's something that um, I've been uh, having to work really hard on the last sort of 70, 14 days and that's positive thinking. So I know that there's a lot, um, a lot of people out there that you might just get told to change your mindset, which is uh, the winner's mindset or mindset's by a buzzword. But I've found that actually the practice of positive thinking has real effects and real benefits for people that struggle with their mental health. Um, I'll tell you a couple of the things that I, I, I do is that I write down some positive affirmations about myself. Um, I try and find the positive in my day. So at the, the approaching the end of every day, I will write down five things that I've enjoyed that day. And I suppose... Um, this is about finding joy and finding positivity um, in everyday life. Uh, no matter how rich, how famous or um, how amazing you think your life is um, or could be um, with more money, bigger house, bigger car, better job, after a while it all becomes mundane if you don't see the joy, uh, see the positivity. Um, in your everyday life, um, which of which we all have plenty of um, to be reminding ourselves. Um, other things that I do is change the way that I'm thinking. So if I'm feeling negative, um, which I do often, and I'm thinking negatively about aspects in my life or aspects in my day or tasks that I need to do, I have a quiet word with myself internally. Um, I don't argue, I don't resist, I just tell myself that I'm not going to think like that and that I want to think positively and what would that look like um, and talk it out. Then what I'll do is, is I'll reflect on why I've been feeling negative and why I've, I've had to give myself that push um, and I'll maybe journal about it. So Positive Thinking is this week's um, sponsor of the podcast uh, and I really hope that you listen um, to Michael's story um, and thank you again to Michael for coming in and telling us this emotional story which um, I absolutely, um, he's my hero um, for coming in and doing that. So from me and Matt, thank you Michael and I hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So hi and um, welcome to this week's episode of the Rebel City Podcast. Um, this week we're extremely lucky to have Michael Byrne, um, who is the author of Poems from a Mod. Um, you are writing this as a means to kind of express your experience around sort of CPS, CPTSD. Sorry, um, wasn't it a term I was instantly 
sort of familiar with. So I don't know if maybe that's a good place for us to start off. Mm. Um, I don't have a clue what that is either, if I'm being honest. Not PTSD is, but CPTSD, no idea. It's, it's a bit of a mouthful. Um, so basically it stands for Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. So the PTSD part's just the same, but the complex part of it basically means that it has derived from childhood. Okay. Or there have been multiple events. All right. uh, and in my life, there have, there have been multiple events um, that have led to me being diagnosed with complex PTSD. So, for instance, had I just been in the Clutha uh, disaster, um, that, and it was a singular incident, mm-hmm. it would be, I would have been diagnosed as having PTSD, which right. I was because okay. I never told them about anything else that happened in my life. But because, you know, uh, a lot of other things have happened in my life, mm-hmm. um, and I got, you know, I, you know, seriously counselled and diagnosed. They realised that it was complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's basically a combination of all of the traumatic events in my life, yeah. which you know led me to a diagnosis of um, sort of being diagnosed uh, in uh, June of this year of complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So the C okay. just means complex, and it just means it's multiple. multiple. Yeah. Uh, in some other instances, it can also mean uh, starting from childhood abuse. So okay. Both of them are relevant for me because I, I was abused as a child as well. Mm-hmm. So, okay. um, so whatever context, I, I fit into both categories. Mm. So, do you think the clutha was that like a trigger? Well, no, not really. The clutha is just a part of it. Um, I'll give you a brief summary of some of the traumatic events that I've been through. If, if, if uh, you're comfortable if, doing that, yeah, if, if we're all comfortable with that, some of it might be slightly uncomfortable. But um, basically, as a as a child up until I was sixteen, uh, I was a victim of. Uh, um, abuse within the household by both my mother and father and that abuse was verbal uh, physical and emotional abuse um, okay. and I witnessed uh, quite a few horrific things I witnessed my mum stabbing my father um, Whoa. which isn't a stereotypical thing normally it would be the other way around mm-hmm, but okay. uh, I witnessed my mother stab my father in the head and uh, a few years later I also witnessed her hit my father with uh, a pot and hospitalise him wow. and kind of end of that when I was 16 I came home from work and uh, discovered my father strangling my mother so I pulled him off we then got into a bit of an altercation as you can imagine mm-hmm. and the one and only time I'd ever hit him is um, then in retaliation um, okay. and that started a kind of demise of any relationship I had with uh, my family at that point in time so it was a pretty difficult childhood you know and there are People have had worse childhoods, so I'm not. It's not in any mm-hmm. way a, uh, yeah. a competition, anyway. But that no. was the start of it, and what I've subsequently learned a lot during, you know, finding out about CPTSD is that what I simply didn't know was that what happens in your childhood kind of sets the tone for yeah. what happens in your adult life. And Absolutely. I know it sounds really simple now, but I never, you know, I never realised that until I got my diagnosis. So, you know. Uh, they say that you have, you know, fight, flight, fawn, and freeze, but yep. when you're subject to childhood abuse your Fs don't materialise well enough. You overcompensate in one because your fear is prominent because you think you're going to get shit kicked out you all the time. Mm-hmm. You're going to be yeah. abused. You're going to be told you're a worthless piece of shit, you know? Mm-hmm. So you do everything you can to avoid have, uh, having that abuse. So yeah, of course. you end up maturing in a way that people who don't suffer that abuse, um, you know, they, well, I don't know what normal is, but they are more rounded have experience. a more rounded experience. Yeah. That's exactly mm-hmm. it, Matt. So I ended up, you know, overcompensating in some areas of my life by trying to throw myself into play football. My mommy would always say, "You're always up playing football," and I'm saying, and I would think to myself, "Because like, I don't want to be in the house getting the doing." Yeah, you know. But she would just think, "You love playing football." 
Um, so that was childhood abuse. And when I was 16, I started working, pretty much left the house as quickly as I could. I could there. A familiar um, story for a lot of people at that age. I uh, witnessing my father doing that and getting into occupation. And trying to stand them on two feet at that age, difficult, you know, because you have to pay your rent, you have to do all those things, you know. Mm -hmm. Especially if, if you're dealing with some sort of unconscious trauma as well. Oh, like yeah. if you've got this sort of fear, like underlying sort of anxiety of like potentially harm against yourself. The, the, to this day, the fear is a major thing for me. That's mm -hmm. the, yeah. the one continual thing. Um, um, that, you know, I have to self-manage that, you know, I'm on antidepressants just now and stuff like that, but yeah. I've, I've, I've self-taught myself a lot of things through my diagnosis, mm -hmm. but when I was 16 anyway, I left the house and then uh, just kind of meandered back to the house after when things weren't working out and that wasn't really great either, but, you know, sorted things out with my old man and, you know, you try and stay in the same yeah. house, you try and do things as best you can. So um, I got to 24 and got married which looking back was too young, but it was a catalyst to, you know, yeah. get out of the house, get away from stuff like that. Aye, try to build yourself the, the, the steady home life that you've not had as a, as a kid as soon as possible. And the one thing that they always say now is that when you get into an adult relationship, you tend to replicate what's happened to you as a child. Okay. Uh, and I did, uh, unknown to me as well uh, at that time. I married a girl I was in love with and all that, but she turned out to be a spousal abuser. Okay. And, which again is pretty rare for a man to be subject to physical abuse by his partner um, yeah. and it was something that he never admitted back then that was in 1994 uh, I got married mm. so different generation you know of course generation, you know it would um, have been almost emasculating to admit that, that you were the victim of domestic abuse as a male back in the yeah, 90s there definitely I'd to work and I'd have scratches on my face and all that sort of stuff and you'd playing football you'd be making up umpteen excuses yeah. but you know, when it's sort of be around, most females would know that, you know, if, some, if a female's coming into work with yeah, people with marks on them and stuff like that, you'd think something You wouldn't wrong. expect another guy to look at you and go, uh, oh, wait a minute, you, know I mean? been... you would go, I fell. You'd go, all right, cool. Oh, yeah, yeah exactly. work with black eyes and I'd be saying, oh, I go to the football on Saturday and, you know, playing football and elbowing. It's, it's embarrassing, you know, or it yeah. was embarrassing, not now, but... So, anyway, that was 1994 and was going through that. And then in 1996, on Burns Day, on 25th of January 1996, um, my father was murdered. Um, which, it was Burns night, I'd been out for a couple of drinks, got a phone call from the cops. Back then, you didn't have mobile phones. Mm -hmm. So I got home and my wife at the time said, oh, the police are looking for you. So you kind of think, fuck have I done? Aye, <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> I've been that drunk, you know, but uh, instant sobriety phoned him and he said, look, you kind of need to get down here. So turned out that um, he'd been in his, he stayed in the flat in the Gorbos, uh, where can I grew up and stuff. And he'd been drinking with this guy, falling asleep on the couch, woke up and the guy was stealing his telly. Mm. Uh, and I kind of make a joke about it, you know, because back then tellies were, you had to be a bodybuilder or a weightlifter uh, to yeah. move your telly back then. It's not like, you know, the way it is mm -hmm. now. Um, my old man woke up and my old man was maybe about five and a half feet. He wasn't he a tall man or he wasn't he a wasn't a bear or not, and the guy beat him to death. Um, oh. Turns out that the guy was an ex-army boxer. Um, so that was that was hard, you know. That was a Thursday night, and I went to work on the Friday morning, and I worked in the Gorbos. So, <sighs> but that's the start of the demise. That's the start of our learned pattern. When something yeah. goes wrong, you get back into work the next mm -hmm. day, or you do something. To, you know, it's yeah, the, it's the playing football when you're a kid. That's that's you know, I don't know how to deal with this. So I'll go to my work. And I had to leave work at lunchtime and go and identify his body at the morgue. And, but just, I continued on just trying to put a brave face on it, as mm -hmm. we kind of spoke about earlier. And 
Uh, so anyway, the murder hunt ensued and cops come for you and fingerprinting and all of that stuff. Mm. And um, so anyway, it turned out they got the guy and uh, the guy just stayed half a mile away and then they had the trial and all the other stuff and uh, and so on. That's a really lengthy process. Aye, it was six months, I think, but to be honest, to this day, Matt, it feels like the blink of an eye. I don't remember much yet. Yeah. I, I remember the phone call to say my dad had been murdered and I remember the trial. Mm. I remember bits in between, but... Okay. It's like the emotional yeah. bubble I, that you go into. enter. I just went into myself. I remember knowing that my personality changed. I couldn't look people in the eye. I felt okay. really embarrassed. I felt that you knew. So if you knew, I almost had to overcompensate again and say, oh, no, it's all right. Yeah. It's fine. You know, you don't need to be uncomfortable around me. Mm-hmm. I could feel my personality and persona change again, you know, because I'm, in, I'm not embarrassed about what's happened, but I'm almost embarrassed for the person talking to me as if they know, yeah. they don't know what to say to me. And oh, I hope, but things were going on so so I just threw myself into my work again um, I was working in the Gorbo so you have the stigma you have all of that close community knowing what was going on rumours yeah. were abound and all of that stuff you know and anyway the guy got uh, acute uh, jailed I think he got like uh, 14 years or something like that um, mm-hmm. when they did the first day of the trial he played guilty to culpable homicide um, rather okay. than pleading guilty leading up to it and the judge had said that injuries by my father uh, were comparable to being hit by a bus. The only bit of his body that wasn't bruised was the soles of his feet. Um, so, but there's just, you know, it happened and again, as I say, that learned pattern in the childhood just continued on. Just Yeah, I mean, I don't have any idea how I would uh, cope with any of that, to be honest. We never but, mind all of that. Uh, back then, you never had organisations like, you know, you have now. So, mm-hmm. so that was then and, uh, you know, I very quickly became hard to live with okay my marriage was hitting the rocks because I didn't know how to deal with it um, you know uh, I had mates and all that sort of stuff but I never spoke about it I didn't want to speak about it mm-hmm. I, I didn't know how to speak about it mm. um, and I didn't want to put it on my mates either you know yeah. because it's one of those things unless you've experienced it how are you going to how can you help the person yeah. and I mean that with the greatest respect you know so I just buried it um, and then you know within a couple of years um you know, pretty much found myself separated and stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't blame Emily for that, it wasn't her fault, it was me, yeah. I know it was me, and just, I should have got help, I could have done a lot of things, but me dealing with that, plus the spousal abuse was just, and I was going to say, I knew one of two things would have happened to I stayed in the household, I would have ended up in the jail, or I would have ended up in the hospital, because I would have retaliated, and back then, you were a bloke, nobody believed that, yeah. you know, it was... Um, Are you going to go to the police station and, and say, ah, she's of course, I, I mean, no, the problem, I laughed you at the police station if you absolutely. had said, like, she, uh, she was abusing me, type uh, thing. And I thought I would have snapped, or equally, if that hadn't happened, I would have ended up being hospitalised, things mm. would have went too far. Mm-hmm. And So, I left the house, and I left, you know, with nothing, pretty much, but it was just better to rebuild, and, yeah. uh, and then just the loneliness kicks in, you know, and you've then got a lot of time to think about things, And but I still felt in a better place. Uh, the next traumatic event was just a few years later, I met a girl, and uh, fell in love, loved it a bit, so we were in a, a relationship, she became pregnant, and I was over the moon, I thought I was going to be a father, and terrified, but happy, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, a relationship, we struggled a wee bit in the relationship, she had an ex-partner in the background with a wee boy, and, you know, just things are a bit difficult, and mm-hmm. I yeah. don't blame the girl, you know. And then I uh, got a phone call out of the blue 
one Sunday morning to say that she'd had a miscarriage and lost the twins. Mm. Um, and that was a big trigger back then, you know. That was maybe 2003 or something. I know okay. it seems like a big gap, but it's a blink of an eye. Aye, and definitely. No, absolutely. You know, it's just a, a timeline almost. So, And that was, that was my lowest point. Okay. Everyone, everyone, you know, whenever I say that, people think, but how could that be? Because you've had your father been murdered. But everyone treats it as an individual event. Yeah. Nobody realises that it's a compound effect. Yeah. Because mm. it's three massive things that have happened. Yeah, that's on a graph. Ah, you think, and I, I you know, hit the drink. I, I did everything, you know. I found myself in situations that you just wouldn't want to find yourself in. But I didn't care. I had yeah. self-loathing. I just mm. didn't want to be here. I just thought... The kind of risky behaviour that we spoke about in previous right, episodes with right. guys like Dan and that. Absolutely. I mean, I, I know why now, but at the time I just thought, I don't know, I didn't even think I don't know how to deal with it. I just thought, I'll just go to Swaling. I'll go for a this drink the Glasgow City Centre. I'm living in a moment. I don't want to feel that pain ever again. So, and I didn't know how to deal with it. As I said, back mm -hmm. I know it's only 15 years ago, but they're one of the really groups plus mm. a man and you think <coughs> things have changed so much you know? and yeah, yeah. I love the way it is now you know mm -hmm. and hopefully with me doing my bit it's, it could maybe help people so that that in itself you know a traumatic event and you know we were helping my mate close mate he kind of dug me out of that hole and uh, I got myself together and the interesting thing my career was flying I was yeah. turning up for work every day and I know that other guys down in particular say, you know, that suit of armour, you stick on your shirt, tie, suit, whatever it is that you wear, your uniform to work mm -hmm. or whatever. And I was turning up for work every day. My performance was through the roof and work because I could control the environment that I was in. I knew how to behave. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I was outside of work, yeah. I couldn't have a relationship together because I didn't want that pain. Mm -hmm. I didn't want a relationship to go as far as that because I didn't want things to happen. Right? Yeah, so starting to protect yourself. And Absolutely, mm -hmm. you know... Uh, but at that moment, when you're in that moment, you don't think it like that. No, you just you think, you just, I just Aye. sabotaged a lot of stuff. Ah, you're, you're you know, just telling yourself this isn't right. Ah, yeah, nah, I don't feel right, and that, that's it. I'm just, I'm not going to go any deeper than that. I would deliberately sabotage it rather than sit down and having a mature conversation. I would just yeah. drink. I would just <clears> go missing. I would just do things that to get the other person at the point of going, this isn't for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. whatever. You know, you can't almost sabotage it by being a bomb. So, so that was very difficult. I always look back and think that was my lowest point mm -hmm. you know until recently um but it was cumulative it isn't an individual oh, thing you know but yeah. people perhaps now are only understanding that definitely so, i think the nhs have just recently started to do a thing where it it's almost getting to the point where they're understanding that things like stress mm -hmm. like that they're doing it with stress where it's there's only so much a person can take before it taps Absolutely. but if you have this, the same, so say somebody else has the same five or six things happen to them, but they deal with them individually. Mm -hmm. None of them will be as bad mm -hmm. as what you're talking about, yeah. this whole sort of like filling yeah. the bucket, filling the bucket until Aye. eventually it just spews out. Over. It's a wee bit like, you know, I kind of I say it now when I talk to people, it's a wee bit like, you know, you get these pressure cookers, yeah. you know, and you have to release the steam in the game. But mm -hmm. if you don't release the steam, the whole thing's just going to explode. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, you know, there was only so often that so many things that you could take. So for about seven years I, I pissed about you know my career was going up but private life was yeah. terrible but that was okay because you know the facade as long as my work was okay mm -hmm. as long as I could present a facade concentrate on the one good thing and I, ignoring all the rest I, I was career driven because again it's like that childhood thing football it's work it's mm -hmm. whatever I can, I've got something I've got a purpose as long as I turn up my work I'll be alright mm -hmm. yeah. and it was um, and then everything kind of really started to fall apart again uh, in 2013, and it was the 29th of November 2013, and that was um, 
the night where me and my mate Tam uh, were in the Clutha Bar when the helicopter unfortunately um, crashed into it. And I remember that night like it was last night. Mm. I still remember it. I remember everything, sights, sounds, people. It's uh, absolutely imprinted in my brain. And um, But to this day, I believe I was meant to be there to help people. You know, I'm not the type of person that would be, oh, what if I just went in the corner and went somewhere else or went to the Scotia yeah. instead of the Clutha? I believe I was meant to be there to help the people that I helped and mm-hmm. I'm comforted by that. Um, but I walked out without a scratch, absolutely without a scratch, and it was like an invisible line had been drawn. Mm-hmm. And I was here, the person next to me there was near. You know, it's just, there's no way of explaining it other than I would just say it's like an invisible line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody to this side of the line physically is okay. Everyone to that side of the line is no. And so I'm, you know, I'm I'm happy with what I did. I don't have things thoughts of or could have, yeah. should have done. I know I done everything that I could have done. I helped people and all of that stuff. And um, I also know, obviously Tam as well. Yeah. Um, well, you know, one of my laws. And um, I remember obviously, you know, the night that it all happened and, and getting word that mm-hmm. Tam and his mate, as as I knew you then, mm-hmm, sure. um, were involved. And remember. Going, so what's happening? Are they all right? And they went, I did two of them went back in, mm-hmm. and I was just like, okay, like <laughs> why? And like because they just did, and you're like, it's, it, you know, I'd love to think that I'd have done the same, but you know, I couldn't say that I would. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, so fair play is in that respect because oh, that's that's horrific. Mm-hmm. And then to actually go back in is, I, I just can't get my head around it. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing for me were having to live with had I no went back in, mm-hmm. that would have been a lot harder for me to yeah. live with, and I know. Tam's been my mate for 25 years or whatever, and the two of us have got a lot of similarities in our nature. And mm-hmm. you know, this isn't about bringing us up, but no. there just wasn't a second thought in it. People needed help, you helped them. And I, mm-hmm. I always remember saying, that's the rules. If somebody needs help, mm-hmm. you help them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I've avoided any thanks or anything like that mm-hmm. uh, because I just like to think everybody would have done the same. Had, yeah. I, had I been trapped under a bar or something like that, mm-hmm. somebody would have helped me. I know somebody would have helped so me. So is that? You know, feeling that way about how you conduct yourself, is that something that when you have confronted the trauma has actually been yeah. useful to you? Well, I, I mean, it, what happened after that, the 2013 Clutha event is a, is a real mark for me, mm-hmm. as it is for everyone who was there and all the emergency services. You know, you, you can't just ignore it. But within a year, I was diagnosed with PTSD. Yep. Within a year, I was extremely suicidal. I was very difficult to live with. And I got diagnosed in October 2014 with PTSD. So that's a whole year later, practically. A year later. And the first thing I said when I got the diagnosis was, I don't want him to know. I don't want him to know. I don't want to tell my doctor. Mm -hmm. Eh, Sorry, my my GP. I don't want my wife to know. I don't want my work to know. I don't want him to know. I never even told Tam. Nobody knew. Because I was embarrassed. I I know it sounds silly. Not at all. No, no, not at all. On this side of the journey, you go, why did I ever know? Mm. I know, I know. It's the biggest thing of the whole. I'm not embarrassed about what I've got. I'm not in any way about it. But back then, I just thought, I'll bury it. I'll just Mm -hmm. absolutely bury it. And I'll I'll just, somehow I'll get better. You know, I'll get better because I've overcame a murder. I've overcame all these other things. Something will click in my head and I'll get better. Mm-hmm. It'll just go away. I'll ignore go away, it and I'll go away. Everybody will forget. Nobody knows about it. It's the only mm-hmm. person knows about it. Yep. me, so, and I'll live with it. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a month later, uh, my, I was on holiday and my wife says to me, she just, when you look at yourself, it looks like you've got a lump in your throat. 
I knew it'd lump in my throat. I just never said. And I always kind of say it's a bit like aftershave. See, when you put aftershave on, you don't smell your own aftershave. Mm-hmm. So when you see something not right in your body, you kind of just got a, kind of oh, like a physical lump. Oh, physical like, lump. right. So I was yeah. thinking like tears, no. like a lump in your throat. Like, no, there was a, a, you had like a tumour right. in my throat. And, you know, it's just when you go to the doctors and you're doing that stereotypical thing where I'll go to the doctors, but you know you're not going to go to the doctors because yeah. mm-hmm. you don't want, you know, as blokes don't want to go. So uh, eventually gave in. But I knew if I went to the doctors that there was a lump in my throat, there was mm. something there. That potential bad news. Potential bad news, so I didn't want to know. Um, so I went and my doctor loved it. You know, he thought it was so unique. You know, he thought he was going to get to sell it in the British Medical Journal and all of that sort of stuff. Oh, so right, he was, he thought, oh, I've never seen this before. This is really rare and blah, blah, blah. And I'm saying, I bet. He's got the more fear I've got, you know, and I'm thinking, if, if this is so unique, it's definitely no good. It's no unique good, it's unique bad. Aye. Um, so anyway, got up to the Royal and uh, uh, started my work, took an hour off work, went up to the Royal and the consultant leaves, and, you know, we need to take a biopsy. Oh, I shouldn't bother. I didn't know what a biopsy was. I didn't have a clue. Mm. And all of a sudden I'm in a gown and he's taking bits out of a lump and all of that sort of stuff. And I went back to my work. I know. Wow. It's just, it's like, you don't know, it's just what a day is. Just an automatic Well, I've Aye. had that done, so now I go and do my job. I'm, mm-hmm. This is what I get paid for and all of that. So, and I always believe that my job is to help people. So I want to do it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you've got that waiting time. A few weeks later, got a phone call for a GP. It's inconclusive. We think it might be cancer. You're going to have to get an operation and remove this tumour from your throat. <laughs> You can imagine, you know, mm, you yeah. hear, you know, I know most of people, more people survive cancer now than ever, but still when you hear those words, you think, you know, so, um, but I did again, the thing that I know you shouldn't do to everyone outwardly, I was saying, I don't have cancer, I'm fine, I know yeah. I'm fine, I'm all right, so to my wife, I'm saying, don't worry, don't want you to worry, mm. to my mommy, everybody else, I'm saying, I don't have it, I don't have it, I know I don't have it, but when the lights go to night, you're in your own head, you're thinking about your, you know, the tunes you want for your funeral and all of that stuff. And mm. you're thinking, right, I need to make a list of who pays the bill, who, you know, who we've got gas and electricity mm-hmm. for a wife and all of that. But I got myself ultra fit. I mean, I was running around Huggingfield Loch like Forrest Gump and I was lifting weights, <laughs> like, you know, and I was trying to get myself fit because I thought, see if I get fit, I'll be back at my work in the time. So I, they took me in. Uh, I remember it was a Monday morning. I was meant to be there at nine o'clock in Gartney Abel. I was there for seven, ready to go. <laughs> I was saying to my missus, I'll, I'll be it later on. I'll be it. Just I'll phone you later on. Just kidding yourself on. Yeah. No, no, I'm telling you, I'll be it later on. Positive mind and all that. Um, so they removed the tumour. The consultant came in the afternoon and told me that they'd removed the tumour the size of an orange and removed half my thyroid as well. And I was a bit like, just Whoa. your expression as well was exactly what I was like. And I How much could you see? I take it you must have just it a wee tiny just, end there. I was just kind of, I was just kind of felt a wee bit like a muscle thing and I would just push it back in and, you know, I, just, right. I thought everybody had that. I didn't know it was, mm. no, what you have, you know. Mm-hmm. And he said it was right into my throat and they'd taken away half the thyroid as well. Um, and I was like, anybody, so can I get him? You know, he said, I hear you've been up and about and I'm pretending, you know, I was up and yeah. about. And he said, you can go home. So I was out that night and I was back at work in 10 days. Um, that's that incredible, man. That should never be. That's aye. wild. It was folly. It was just stupid. But again, it was just this persona. Mm. Um, I think the work was the only coping mechanism you had that entire time. So and I, and I can exactly get why you're exactly, you know, desperate cr- to get back. It's a crutch. Yeah. It's my crutch. So that all happened in the first year. In 2015, 
I was just trying to put it all behind me. Uh, sorry, I should have said uh, a couple of days before Christmas in November, uh, sorry, in December 14, uh, went up to the consultant for the news and they said that it was all clear uh, just to go back and get regular yeah. checks. They have no idea where it came from or why it happened. But knowing what I know now, I think it's just a manifestation of all the trauma. So I was going to say, man, the amount of things that, I mean, I'm at, I'm at uni just now mm-hmm. studying um, counselling skills but to go into like, become a therapist mm-hmm. and the amount of stuff that I'm reading where it's like, stress cortisone stress mm-hmm. hormone in your body causes cancer and, and people have just waking up to this thing and as, as soon as you said that i was just thinking to myself this has been stress it's caused uh, this guy's cancer when and I, when i you know went to the doctor after it to ask for you know can I, am, I, am i doing something that caused that mm-hmm. or whatever mm. and he just basically <coughs> said to me it falls under the category of shit happens mate they don't have an answer for you uh, and i knew then that i think it's a culmination of all of the traumatic events for your childhood, yeah. that my body's just always fighting this fear, it's manifested somehow in a mm-hmm. I don't know the biology behind it all, mm-hmm. but it's just what I think. Yeah. So I still, you know, t- got into 2015, just flung myself into work, and came home from work one night, and it was like a 14-hour day, nothing different than that. Came home, went to the toilet, blacked out, smacked my head off the, I smacked my head off something, I don't know what it was, blacked out, came round, burst my head open, and. Dog's licking the blood off my head and my missus is screaming, you know, so she had a thump. So it was a night, the football was on that night and I'm sure Rangers were playing and my missus had phoned NHS 24, take him to the hospital, he's blacked out, take him there. And I'm sure they just thought, guy's been at the football, you know. Yeah. And I don't blame them for that, you know, mm-hmm. you see what you see and you make a judgement on it. They glued me up, threw me out, any x-rays or anything like that. And again, I don't blame them, I'm sure they're just yeah. thinking there's more serious than that. So... Went back to work the next morning. <clears throat> had a meeting with the chief exec and the other directors. Need to go out You know, it was like just all right. Fainted. So uh, yeah, I was just right. oh, blacked out. Don't know what happened. Oh, I ain't bother. And I'm putting a face on it, but it's an organisation. They should have been sitting going, "You've been on a cliff and you've that tumour yeah, last you've had year. Cancer, you've had this, and you're now you're doing bl- you're blacked out. Oh, you know, definitely, uh, somebody should have had the an alarm bell going off. Penny should be dropping. So that was 2015. And then in 2016, uh, my wife gave birth to a wee boy. So that was a brilliant thing. Mm, um, yeah. But for nine months, as you can imagine, we, what had happened in a previous relationship mm-hmm. with twins and stuff, and that was kind of fearful. But and just it. the stress of pregnancy as well. Aye, absolutely. You know I mean? Just the normal fears. That yeah. the Aye, I was day. scared of becoming a father. Absolutely scared of becoming a father. What if I replicated stuff from my childhood to my son? Yeah. You know, I was bottling it's it. It's a terrifying you know? thought. It's... I didn't want to be the father to him the way my father was to me. And I know I've got the ability to change that, but, it, you know, back then you think, what yeah. if it's ingrained? What if I can't? What if I'm going to be a bar and I can't take it? So, But um, everything's great. You know, he's two, two and a half now and everything's great. But the next traumatic event after that and uh, was the 1st of April 2017. And I was in an Asda car park up in Rob Royston. And if you're familiar with it, there's a... Pedestrian crossing, kind of mm-hmm. halfway up the mm-hmm. go from one car park to the yeah. sports gym and yeah. that sort of stuff. So I stopped to let this young boy and his dad cross. And I'm just watching them cross the road. And out of nowhere, car comes into the side of me, just smashes into the side of me. Um, didn't see it coming because it's side on. Mm-hmm. I'm watching yeah. the front and I'm stationed uh, anyway, right. so there's nothing I can do. And I get out and it's just an elderly guy in the car. And my concern mostly was he was all right, you know, yeah. quite a mate on all that. Sorted a few things out, but I knew from that moment I wasn't right. You know, I had shooting pain just below my left ear. Yep. 
I was extremely dizzy. Um, went in and got my shot. <laughs> <laughs> you went on the Asda after you were in a car smashed in the Asda, got my shot and it's, it's nuts, you know, aye, it's, aye, it's, it's, like it's a, a clear, superhero, aye, 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 it's like, oh right, I can do this, and then, <laughs> within four days I went to the doctor, took an hour off work to went to the doctor and the um, doctor says to me, you need to get a set of the royal, you're so the signs of having a stroke, Wow. your your eyes are all over the place, you've got this pain in the, in the neck, it's not like a neck pain, it's just, Mm-hmm. Like was it a nerve? Was an eye. It was no. like something just wasn't it like a sore neck. It was like you could feel it inside. Like, you know, your blood vessels were bursting. It was just a feeling. It was just a horrible feeling. Aye. And I was constantly dizzy. I was going into the shower and stuff, and I haven't hugged the walls. And eventually, I gave in. I thought I need to go to doctors with this, and he got me up to the hospital. And I was the world's worst patient. I was saying, I'm not staying here. I'm all right. Get me out. Let me out and all that, you know, because I knew. I thought. They've, they're going to know something's wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to bluff them, you know, and I need to get back to my work. And that's the embarrassing thing for me, you know. Um, I'm emotional, but you want to say it, but my priority was to get back to my work, not my eight-month-old son. You know, that was, you know, I'm getting found out in the house because I'm aware of place, but I'm not getting found out in work. They're not yeah. paying attention uh, to me. They're mm-hmm. not seeing that I'm aware of place or they are and they're not caring. But I was begging the hospital to let me out. So they... Ran all sorts of testing. They wanted. They were keep me in for any man eye. I was protesting. I was. I wasn't even wanting to get into the gown. And you know, uh, so eventually they said, if you sign yourself out, we're going to phone the cops because if you drive, we're going to say you're at risk. You're to mm. yourself. Yeah. And I told enough, them I that. Mm-hmm. Aye, and but I felt blackmailed. I felt that I was staying there under false pretenses. Yeah. But anyway, and I apologised to everyone in the hospital at the time. They were doing the right thing. It was me that was trying to get out. Of, some kind of treatment, Aye. you know. So, um, so they kept me on overnight, and at that point, that was one of my biggest fears was having to stay in the hospital. Yeah, I don't know why, I don't know why, but that was my biggest fear. So the next morning, I begged them to let me out. I woke up at the crack of dawn, made my bed, got dressed, and like, and they came and said to me that MRI machine wasn't going to be free till the following week. I was going to be kept in for the uh, week, for the next week, and wow. I begged them. Uh, I begged them. Ultimately, begged them, saying, "Look, please let me out." and they let me out the Friday afternoon. Too late to go to work, I have to say. So I never went to work yeah. on Friday. I'll <laughs> <laughs> just stay for the weekend. Then. <laughs> I went to, but I went to work on a Monday. And I'm ashamed to say I drove to work on a Monday. And I drove to work all week. Um, and I told my worker, should be driving? But that was where my priorities were mm-hmm. at that point in time, you know. Um, anyway, went for MRI and uh, got it all clear. But again, it's just unexplainable of why you have these dizzy, why it was happening. So... April 17 began my breakdown, really. Mm-hmm. And from that moment on, things got very, very difficult for me. Okay. I was struggling big time. And basically, it was like a set of dominoes. When I was recalling the bang of the car crash, I was recalling the bang of the Clutha. Mm-hmm. So it was like car crash, Clutha. And then the uh, that led me to the unfortunate people who didn't survive and images that i seen and the Clutha mm-hmm. led me to then the next picture would be having to identify my, bar, my father's body in the morgue. The next part was that I turned 48 last year. My father was murdered when he was 48. Mm-hmm. So it was just like a perfect storm. Aye, what yeah. a nice trigger for you. Aye, it was just... So I systematically went about looking for help, but okay. in all the wrong ways. Um, I didn't know how to ask for help. Yeah. I didn't know... I wasn't brave or courageous enough to actually ask somebody for help. Um, 
So I went about messing up my private life and I went about messing up my professional life because mm. my belief was that the more badly behaved I am at work, the better chance that my boss is going to say to me, stop. Aye, we need, we, we need you help. Need you, help. Mm. you need help. You've been through so many events. I know about the murder. I know about all that stuff. And you're acting out of character. You need help. Yeah. And, you know, I was just going off the rails at home. Um, so that culminated in January of this year. And in January of this year, my boss took me in. And I thought, here we go, here's the help coming. And he sat me down and ultimately suspended me for my behaviour. Okay. So I begged him to help me and not punish me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he continued to suspend me and sent me and asked me to report back to the office in a couple of days' time for a formal hearing. Uh, so I told him I PTSD and knowing what I know now that should never have happened he, he was aware I had a mental health yeah. illness and I should never have been taken into a disciplinary hearing no, 100% no you know, but um, so he took me in and I made the decision the night before to tell him everything that I've just told you guys yep. up until that point I'd never told him all these things mm -hmm. I'm new of them but never in one whole body ah, almost yeah. like well, that's happened that's happened that's happened but when you put them all together yeah um, so I went and the night before I spoke to my wife and made a conscious decision that I was just going to tell him everything because I'm not ashamed of it. Oh, I need help. Yeah. So I told him and him and the HR director were there and I explained everything to him uh, that I was suicidal. Um, I'd been in contact with the Samaritans and various other agencies just to try and keep myself going. And my behaviour was all about a cry for help. Um, and I, his words to me were, I don't know why all of those things that have happened made you act that way. That's exactly what you said and did to me. And and you and you remain suspended. And that in itself became a massive traumatic trigger event. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because the first guy, it could have been a woman, but it was a man and a woman, that opened up to dismiss me almost. Mm, and say, yeah. Well, we don't I, understand it's it. It's not an excuse for the disbehaviour almost. It's a clear reason why I'm behaving the way mm -hmm, I'm mm -hmm. You're telling them that though. That this mm -hmm. is the, the main thing is, is that you're telling them this is why I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. and, so. and they're saying to me, you know, you've done this. And I've said, oh, I've done that. But listen, I've done loads more. And, if, and you know I've done loads more. So why are you pulling me for this when I've done all of these things? Mm -hmm. and I've done all of these things as I cry for help. I was missing deadlines. I was argumentative at meetings. I brought one of the girls who was a manager for me into my office and I was a bastard to her I had her in tears and then when she got upset I told her to get out of my office and go in dry eyes and that's no me no and as soon as I'd done that I went to my boss and told him I've just done this yeah nothing was it a conscious sort of thing that you were doing or was it something that was happening that you, you didn't have real control or what, what you were doing but I, you know now you understand it now I understand it a lot better now I think at the right. time I didn't care of the consequences, mm. so I was reckless. I was I was needing help, and I didn't care what I did to get that help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I needed. I know that I needed somebody to stop me. It's almost like that, you know. Things in the past, you get to a lowest point, and you just, you really want somebody to say stop Aye. or come on. We need me to go and pay a visit to somebody or something like that. Definitely. And I just needed somebody to say to me, stop. Mm -hmm. You don't have to take a week off. Or you need to go to a counsellor. You need to go and do something. Or we recognise that your behaviour is so out of character. Yeah, uh, and during the conversation, you know, once he suspended me, I asked for a private conversation with him, and, and he admitted to me that he'd known that my behaviour had uh, been different since the previous October. He'd noticed various things and done nothing about it, and it very much felt to me that 
they had wanted to give me enough rope to get rid of me. Yeah. Mm. Then actually try and deal with the complex issues that came out of providing Subsequently he's denied of having that conversation, but <laughs> I suppose he's got to mm. because if he acknowledges that I told him I had CPTSD, That's it. back then all the other, all the subsequent actions should never have happened. Mm-hmm. So so basically at that point I was suspended. As I've said, my coping mechanism, or as you've said, my coping mechanism mm-hmm. was my work. And to have that taken away from me was yeah. debilitating, I'd imagine. First phone call I made when I came out of that office that day was to the Samaritans um, because I was picking the bridge that I was going off. Yeah. I'd picked the railway line that I was going in front of. Um, I'd picked the tree that I thought might hold my weight, you know. Um, I was I was in a terrible state. Um, and I knew I had to, I, I knew I had to try and get by. I knew I had to survive mm-hmm. the next day and the next day. And but it was difficult. Um, and that's really where everything just came to head for me in January this year. Okay. And seeking help, and everything has really just happened as a consequence of that. Cool. And so, in terms of you were saying, obviously you used guys like the Samaritans and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I, where did where did your sort of recovery go for there? See, before we get into recovery, man, I just want to say thanks for sharing that, yeah. by the way, because that's, I mean, it's an incredible story, but it took, it takes, and I know that's myself, it takes a serious amount of balls to sit down. We, we don't know each other to no. just sit down and go, here's here's what I've been Absolutely. through, man. So you're so brave to just be able to share that with people, man, and I've got a lot of just instant admiration for you that you can do that, man. I, I appreciate you saying that. Right? Um, the thing for me was that when I told my boss that that day, um, I felt like my world had ended because the first guy you opened up to, mm-hmm. the first people you opened up to, just don't want to, just don't want to understand. Mm-hmm. So I was devastated that even on a human level, forget yeah. the corporate level where you've got to be a boss and all that, I begged the man for help. Mm-hmm. I, I knew I knew I needed help, and I didn't care what how he punished me, but I knew I needed help. Mm-hmm. And they're meant to offer counselling service. I begged them for help, and as a man or even you know as a female, as a human being. I don't want to beg. And I begged that man no. for help and he had the interest in helping me. So I was lower than low and mm-hmm. leaving that office that day because I thought the first person I really asked for help. So I knew I was in a bad place and I phoned um, Gam H mm-hmm. and said, look, I really need help. I phoned my GP, said, look, it'll be Thursday before we can see you. And I thought, fuck, how am I going to get and through the next few days? You're in a crisis moment. I, and I, I need this respect to all the agencies. I've never been involved with anything. I didn't know where to go. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a clue where to go. Yep. But again, actually, they told me there was an organisation called Turning Point uh, who just come out of the, who are in the West End. Yep. Who are, in, who are on a group on a Wednesday night. And I thought, if I can get you Wednesday night then, I can talk to somebody then, you know. Mm-hmm. So I went in and, you know, like anything else, you need to be brave walking in that door because it's total strangers. With all due respect, it's the same with you guys, you know. Yeah. So I knew going along to that, it's killer cure because I, you know, I've tried to talk to somebody on Monday and it didn't go well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but maybe I just need help, so I'll, I'll do anything to survive till Thursday. And I thought going there on the Wednesday night would see me through to Thursday morning to yeah. get my GP. And I went and um, ended up in a wee small group with five people. And it came to me, and I just thought, fuck it, I just need to tell this story. I need to get it out. I need to, I need to just get it out of me mm-hmm. again. And I was blubbering. I was crying. Mm-hmm. I was breaking down. Um, and I'm not ashamed of it, you know, not it's just complete strangers. But, you know, I just had Sounds to get Sounds as though there's a reasonable you know. chance that's the first time you ever did that for any of that stuff. It was, I. You know um, what I mean? What? I'd, 
you know, it's the second time I'd ever told it, but obviously in a work environment, you know, in that work environment, you know, I was having a physiological effect. I was, you know, I know I'm doing it now, but it was a lot worse then because you're dealing with people who are, you know, repressive towards you. Mm -hmm. But um, I was having flashbacks, you know, something natural, you know. Um, But I was in a bad place, but I thought, I'll go down on Wednesday night. Maybe I'll meet some other people who've been through some stuff and, you know, I can get a common bond and stuff like that. And I went on Wednesday night and as I said, I was crying. I was, I couldn't hold it in. And I went every week and uh, I still go. I was there as recently as last Wednesday before the Christmas shutdown. Uh, and I still go and they helped me. Um, it helped me because I could sit with people. And although nobody could really understand or relate as such, I could relate to them because I could, if someone had depression or whatever, I could think, oh, mm-hmm. I think I've had that all these years. I just never knew I'd had it because yeah. I was burying my head. So I thought that went well. I went to my GP on the Thursday. He diagnosed me with, he already knew I had PTSD by this point, with depression and anxiety on top of it as well. Um, and I felt, I felt stigmatised right away. I felt embarrassed. I came out of the doctors and I was in tears. Yeah. Because to me, I had this persona to live up to, you know, big, strong guy, confident. I put on this facade. If you'd known me back then, everyone always said, oh, he's always got a smile and always looks like that. Mm-hmm. Just a front. Yeah. Because inside, I'm sitting thinking, I hope nobody talks to me because I don't know what to say. I don't think I can have a conversation. So I'll just smile and it's a lot of shit. Yeah. But mm. inside I'm terrified that somebody's going to talk to me because I think, I don't know what to say. I'm mm. the least confident guy mm. in the world. But if you smile and you shave and you get your hair cut, people think, well, you're all right. I've you know, experienced something quite similar to that and I think in reflection I've felt that it's been less a... It, that, that is how I put it through my head was is that I don't I, I can't relate to MD here and I can't hold conversations and I don't know why people like me mm-hmm. but really what it is for me was that I didn't want to get into conversations with people just in case mm-hmm. I met that person that just got under my skin right. and just managed to just because as soon as that wee chink in your armour went I knew that it was just all going flooding right. it I didn't know mm-hmm. but I know now that that's what it was do you know what I mean I, I can relate to that uh, Paul and Every year, uh, me and my mates go to Benidorm for, uh, in March. And um, I think it might have been two years ago. I didn't go this year because as part of my suspension, I'm not allowed to see uh, my best mate, Tam. Okay. So I never went to hold of him because if, if I was to see him, he would be disciplined for being in contact with what me. What a shite that is, man. Fucking hell. Well, when you think that the two have been in a clue to him about each other's support network, mm-hmm. to be deprived of that uh, has been a disgrace. But... But we're stunned in a pub last year. We're stunned in a pub and somebody on the way, just in a crowd of boys, said, Ah, that helicopter flew over my house. What helicopter are you talking about? That one in the cluster. And I burst into tears. It wasn't even on my radar. It wasn't, it's not like it was part of a conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was just, somebody mentioned it and I'm like, what are, you, what are you talking about? And he told me what it was. I burst into tears. And I ran out, I ran out the toilet mm-hmm. thinking, Oh, I'm going to fall apart here. Yeah. It's, it's as you said, it's that one thing that gets under you, and you think my whole world is going to fall down here. Mm-hmm. And if it starts to fall down, I don't know if I can rebuild it. Um, so, I, moving back to this year, I, I then found myself desperate to try and get help. Mm-hmm. I, you know, my GP had referred me to uh, for psychological treatment, uh, but I was told that that was going to be a considerable weight, obviously. Um, so I What's the NHS waiting list for things uh, like four, that? 14 weeks minimum. Their, their target is to um, have some sort of referral acknowledged within 14 weeks. That's a disgrace um, to me. Uh, I, I, I don't have anything against them. Do you? No, yeah, it's that, not that individuals. It's no, nothing no. to do with an individual, is it? Uh, or a GP. That's, or that's just the system and uh, it's bigger than any time, individual. I, I didn't notice 14 weeks at that point. Mm-hmm. I just know it now. But I was, 
I was a round peg in a square hole or a square mm. peg in a round hole. I was desperate to get help. I contacted a few agencies. I contacted um, Victim Support. Mm -hmm. I went to see them out in Hamilton. Um, and I got um, referred to this organisation called Petal. And it was people affected by trauma and loss. Okay. Again, out in Hamilton. Uh, and I met their psychologist um, just basically, just, you know, because all these triggers were going off my head, the closer my dad's mm -hmm. mother. I was, a, I was a wreck. I was... And um, he sat me down, met him quite a few times, uh, and he was trying his best, you know. He sent a, 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 a note to my employer saying, this guy's got, you know, I think what he called it was some form of PTSD, but basically meaning high-functioning PTSD, which means yeah. he was capable of coming into work and still functioning, but outside of that, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, around about March of this year, I contacted Dan from, from Bars and Arms, yep. just... It's a strange thing, but you know, I went up to my mammy's one Sunday and she said to me, I heard this guy on the radio. Um, he set up an organisation trying to stop men from um, completing suicide. You might want to check him out. Um, and I did, I contacted him through his website mm -hmm. and I've been an ambassador for them ever since. And I found That's it amazing. useful that when I was going to environments to talk to people, I would very suicidal, but at least engaging with other people who might have the same thing. Yeah. You know, it's quite cathartic, you know, because the biggest problem is most of the time is that you're scared of being judged and you think you're alone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and you think you're the only person that's having all these yeah. thoughts in them and you exactly. sit with somebody and they can say, I've not got over that, but I can totally relate to mm -hmm. suicidal thoughts and stuff like that. Yeah. You know? So I've done that. Uh, and then I had really hit a low point in May this year where I'd cut my grass and hate cutting my grass. And it's big fear. I just hate cutting it. But it's because of my compulsive nature of a day. It's got to be like one more yeah. it. It's got to be perfect. And I can't do it perfect, so I'm a failure. Um, so I cut my grass within an inch of its life, front and back. Cleared out the garage. <coughs> cleared out every cupboard. Made the house look perfect. Um, over that weekend, because I knew on Wednesday I was going to commit suicide. I planned it. My boy goes to his grand's on a Wednesday. I thought, right, that's it. I'd stockpiled. 20, 30 boxes of paracetamol that was my last resort because I don't really want to date that way mm -hmm. Yeah. but if all else failed at least I could have a bottle of Jack Daniels and mm -hmm. just thank myself and uh, take all them and I was I didn't know it then but I know it now that basically it's classic symptoms of making sure everything's clean tidy that way your conscience yeah. is clear as, as silly as that sounds to some people but basically my thought was I'll make sure the house looks great because when the police come up and tell my missus if, you know I've committed suicide or when people come up to visit the house looks all right, you know, she doesn't have to worry about that. I know, yeah, I know. It's such a strange thought, isn't it? Aye, but, but so my, common. Pri my priority was make sure the house is fine when I'm not here. Um, so I'd set it, I went to bed on a Tuesday night. It was the happiest I'd been because I knew that the pain was going to leave and leave me the next morning. I wasn't going to be in pain. And now I know I've been in pain. I'm 49. I, I just think I've been in pain for 49 years mm -hmm. yeah. uh, through abuse and through all those things. And that Tuesday night I went to bed happy. I know that doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. I'm happy that I'm going no. to bed and I'm going to, I want to die the next day, but it was the ending of the pain that mm -hmm. was more important than anything else. And when people talk about suicide and hear some people saying, oh, it's a really selfish thing to do, believe me, you'll do anything to get rid of that pain. And so I woke up the next morning, happy. My wife um, got a text message from her mum saying, I can't watch the wee guy today. I've been up during the night. I'm no well. Could Michael just watch him? Mm -hmm. And that changed everything uh, for me because I, all my plans had changed. And 
I knew I wasn't going to date him in a wee guys, you know. Yeah. Uh, as much as you want to do it, you want to do it in the right circumstances, yeah. you know. I wouldn't do that with my boy, you know. So, which is absurd because you want to leave him to live his whole life without you, but you don't want to do something. You know? Yeah. But it's the very clear thinking um, at that point in time. And I knew from that moment on, I was in a bad place. Um, I was living an hour at a time. I was going from 10 o'clock to 11, yeah. 11 to 12. But, you know, I was waiting for the psychological help that I needed mm -hmm. and... Um, that came, thankfully that came. I got a letter asking me to go to the Glasgow Psychological Trauma Centre, mm -hmm. which is a specialist unit out in Kinna Park, uh, who specialise in complex post-traumatic stress disorder, and I didn't know that at the time, you know, yeah. and survivors of the Clutha. Okay. So <clears throat> I've landed in the right place. Mm -hmm. um, so I got, I went there for an assessment, mm -hmm. and the assessment Normally would happen in one session, um, but it took them two sessions to okay. carry out the assessment just because of the amount of yeah. stuff. And ultimately they diagnosed me with complex PTSD. Okay. And I was happy because I had something, mm -hmm. something tangible that yeah. me being me, I could go and buy a book about it, I could go and research it. You, you know, knew and you were I, fighting there. I knew, right, and I'm looking at things and Googling it, you know, because everybody Googles it when you mm -hmm. find it. So. Mm. And you see all these classic behaviours and you think, Fuck. <laughs> this is me. That's what I've been doing for all these years. This is my life I'm reading about here. I, and, uh, I bought a book by a guy called Pete Walker. My journey through my survival, surviving and thriving through PTSD or CPTSD. And honestly, the guy was writing my, I was reading my life story. Yeah. And I read it and I thought, magic. I'm no unique. Mm -hmm. people out there who Definitely. have some of the things that I've got, you mm -hmm. know, or one of them or something. But I felt glad that I'd been diagnosed, you know, I know mm -hmm. that. You know, Disney sounds it sounds silly, but I came away thinking, brilliant! I can at least mm. research it now, and I can, I can understand why I'm me. You know, yeah, uh, of course, that makes that sense. You know, so tell you use pretty regularly uh, through the book. You know, that explaining why I am me. It's something that kind of resonated with me quite a bit. So, in terms of like the self help and the yes. research and the googling and stuff, is this is this where the yeah the book came from? Because well, it sounds as if you had you know a lot of writing in the past and that kind of stuff. I've never written anything in my life before. And it actually came about, a lot of things happened in May, the diagnosis and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I wasn't in a good place and I got diagnosed and uh, it was actually a, a support group meeting at Time mm -hmm. Out Scotland on the Wednesday night. And then on that Wednesday, I was in the house and I wasn't in a good place and I had an urge to write something down. Yeah. Now, I've never written anything in my life. I, I came to school in 1986 and had a B for English. I yeah. didn't get any hires, you know, I've got a qualification in my job, mm -hmm. but... And I wrote two poems then. And the first one's called The Final Chime. The second yep. one is called Ember, and that's the first two poems. That's the, the first book. one. They're the first two poems and I wrote. I think wrote. the book as well, one of the things that I really felt when I was reading through it was that you've always got your four acts. Mm -hmm. And like having hear you tell the story in your own terms there, like the, the acts kind of really feel like they flow with that movement of your story. You know what I mean? Where it starts, the, the first one's felt to me quite dark. Yeah, yeah. And then it felt as though you were going through realisations and acceptance and, you know, and then obviously, you know, sort of planning for futures and stuff like that. So it, it sits like just almost exactly what you've just told us in that respect. Like I really enjoyed um, Glasshead. So that's like, because mm -hmm. as you were talking about your throat and yeah. we've talked in previous episodes with guys like uh, MOT for men and men's health plus and stuff, for guys that mental thing doesn't get the same treatment as the sort of physical side of things like, and that image, I wish I had a glass head so that people could see what was wrong with me. 
was something that like really spoke to me. I'm so glad that you said that actually because Glasshead is a catalyst for poems from a mod. Right. Nobody knows that. Um, cool. Well, the the, the, the Stigma Free Lanarkshire, who's a charity that had released it. Yeah. Um, they're the only people that know, and Glasshead is the catalyst for all of this. Because oh, right. while I was doing an event for Brothers in Arms out in Lanark, mm-hmm. uh, this lady from an organisation called Stigma Free Lanarkshire, all about trying to raise awareness and reduce stigma mm-hmm. around mental health, came up and asked me about Brothers in Arms. And then I started talking to her and asking her what she did, and she told me about mental health. I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, because I just wrote a poem called Glasshead. Yeah. And she said, oh, wouldn't you mind seeing it? And I was kind of like, oh, it's shite. It's, you know, and that way you kind of go, oh, it's not very good and I'm embarrassed about it and yeah. I wish I'd never said it now. And she said, no, no, could you let me see it? So I sent her it. And she said, well, could you come in and see us? So mm-hmm. I went in and based in Motherwell. I went in and said, look, I really like that poem. Mm-hmm. I really like the meaning of it. As you, as you just said, Matt, it's about if you have a physical disability or illness, people don't judge you. If you've got a twisted ankle, nobody expects you to run 100 yards. No. People mm-hmm. take you for what it is and go, you're limited in your abilities, but it'll get better. Mm. And that was the premise for writing that poem, that if I had a glass head or if we all had glass heads and, you know, people could see the wee bit that's linked to, you know, my CPTSD and think, yeah. I believe you and don't judge me. It's, I believe you're not great today, so that's all right. And we all wouldn't have this stigma of, okay, right, you know, you're at it and stuff like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. So I showed her that and she said, look, we do this thing about recovery stories. Um, would you mind giving us some poems and maybe we could see about trying to do something? Yeah. And, the premise was that they would help people because they're recovery stories and somebody might read them and yeah. think, oh, I can relate to that. And I said, aye. I said, look, if you think they can do anything, on you go. And I ended up, I gave her about 22 or 23 of them. Okay. <clears throat> but I never really thought anything more about it because yeah. they were just my writings. They weren't they weren't written for anyone. Mm-hmm. They were just cathartic for me, just scribbling stuff. Yeah. And I'd written a whole load more, you know. It was just... And some of them are really personal as well. I mean, aye, it's yeah. clearly, clearly, you know, sort of coming for you. Um I was also looking at the obviously your social media. You know, we'll obviously post your Twitter and mm-hmm. you know various other bits and bobs and the links to the video when we when we go live. Um, I've seen that you do a lot of like sort of as a corporate speaking events and stuff like that. Is, is this uh, in relation to the book? Is this just merely your it's, general experiences? It's been through brothers and arms, right? Um, because because my experience is quite unique. Mm-hmm. Um, during the year there, when it was mental health awareness, or there was opportunities mm-hmm. um, to raise awareness about mental health, uh, I would go along to like Barclays Bank. Uh, I think it was Alliance Insurance. Uh, I did a talk for NHS, and a couple of weeks ago I was along at the British Army uh, in Edinburgh. Yeah, uh, their barracks. That was when I seen to you raise about, about um, raise awareness about PTSD, and in fact they've asked me back in the new year to. It's going to be pretty special to be then talking to veterans about that type Absolutely, of thing because yeah. that's something that they all have been ignored about for aye, decades. Aye, when, when I, you know, I'm, I was honoured to be asked by the army to come along uh, and speak to them because, you know, you. You know, if the army can start talking about PTSD, you know, because I think PTSD, a lot of people just think it's a military illness, yeah. you know, or ex-military illness, and that's the only way you get it. Mm-hmm. Clearly it's not by some of the things I've just spoken Absolutely about, not, you know, yeah. and people have it, you know, perhaps just by a physical event that's happened to them on a Friday night or anything, mm-hmm. where you can get it from a whole range of things. But, mm. but going to the army was really special because I, if we could start to break down that stigma all yeah. about PTSD and to say to some of the, the troops who were there that, look, this is... This can happen to a civilian, you know, it doesn't just happen through military, but if you are, look, there's a bit of hope here, and that's basically what all my poems are about. They're about mm-hmm. trying to provide hope to Definitely. people like me um, that have been through or are currently going through. I know I'm in recovery, I'll be in recovery for forever because yeah. it's good days and bad days, like like everybody is. So, as well, we'll always be recovering. Aye, it's never going um, to be. And I'm happy, I accept that, I'm happy with that. I'm, 
happy in my skin. I'm happier in my skin than I've been in a, all my life because I know what's wrong with me. Mm. But I can't change the past, but I, c I can determine what my future's going to be. And that, that's really where I am at this moment in time. Mm. And poems from a mod and my social media stuff for me is a vehicle to say to somebody, look, this guy's been through a lot, no more than anybody else. Mm. But if they poems can make you relate to it and go, right, well, guys wrote a poem, I could maybe write a poem or I can do whatever it is that's challenging me. expressing yourself and right. what, you're, what you're going through. It's right. brilliant. And, and that, that's all it is. It's no, you know, it's no me being any better or thinking, oh, I've got a book of no, poems and not all at that. All. It's no, it's not only a stepping stone to, to help people and if you relate to it, it's free anyway, you know, so nobody's yep. making any money yet. Um, it's on my blog, but I always uh, post a link to Stigma Free Lanark, sir, um, okay. so that people can go on their website and actually see for what it is. Um, but, it's free to download. The 4X thing is, uh, came about, well, my name came about poems from a mod because I'm into all the mod stuff. Yeah. The 4X came about because Quadrophenia okay. is an X as well and I just yeah. tried to deal with that. So I looked through all the poems I had and just tried to fit them into Act 1 where I was at my worst. Yep. Act 2 is when I become aware of, I've really got this illness now, this mm -hmm. is real and it's not the bury your head in the sand. Act 3 is when I had a summer holiday during the year and I was terrified of going because mm -hmm. I thought, I'm going to end up just walking into the water and yeah. coming back. And I had to get approval from my psychologist and my doctor and all sorts of people I'd to, been abroad to go. Really. Um, but I went and it made changes in me just seeing the sunshine and it made me observe the world differently as well. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the benefits. I see the world totally differently for what I do. Mm -hmm. like, you know, I hear lines or conversations or guitars or stuff like that and that'll make me think, oh, that's a beautiful guitar and then yeah. that'll take me somewhere and I might end up writing a poem or I might think of a line or... And then I come, I don't sit down and think, I'm going to write a poem then. Yeah. It's, it kind of just floods my brain, you know, and I think, yeah. God, I better get my phone or I'll write a line then. So, so other than like the therapy, obviously, the tr traditional to, to go and see it, well, we should do more of it, go mm -hmm. and see therapists, but yeah. it's definitely like one of the first ports of call for mental health. Do you have any other sort of practices that you do? Oh, like, yeah. Obviously, it's, like Bidan does meditate, he's that's promotes right. meditation. They use the Thrive app. Um, so in the early days, I was using that. Uh, I was using the meditation part of that. But because my sleep's so bad at night, I have hypervigilance, which means I, when I fall asleep, I wake up 15 minutes later and I think the world's going to end or you know, helicopters mm -hmm. are going to come down. I, I can't sleep properly. So whenever I used his meditation, I would end up falling asleep. And I was quite happy to do that because it meant I could get asleep while yeah. I was doing it. So yeah. it probably wasn't designed for that, but it was mm -hmm. a vehicle for me. And I think, take whatever you can get. Ah, um, it's relaxation at aye, the end of the day. Absolutely. So I've been doing a, you know, a few things. I've doing all the things that the books tell you I'm out running uh, I'm writing I'm talking mm -hmm. mm. talking's a big thing for me you know it's the I biggest know that for it me. helps me aye. Aye. you actually feel people. the weight don't you when you're, you share aye. stuff uh, you know it's it's that way that as I said earlier see when you talk and you know you're not going to be judged it's the most empowering thing in the world mm -hmm. you know, I know we all seem to be conditioned to judge people on a whole variety of things but see when you know that you're not going to be judged you feel free to be able to say to people look Oh, I'm me. I'm not embarrassed with who yep. I'm now. I, I don't see myself as a victim of everything that's happened in my life. I'm a survivor of everything that's happened, mm -hmm. and I'll continue. I'm no. I'm not going to commit suicide. I don't want to commit suicide. Yep. That's where I was, and every day I don't. I'm a day further away from it. Day of one. I don't see my day as getting nearer to it. I see my day further away from it. Yeah. But I'm acutely aware I can have a bad day tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, like I. we all can. So mm -hmm. I'm no any more special or less special than anybody else. I mean, it sounds to me as that that focus, that sort of, you know, crutches you put it that you had all through your life until your sort of realisation of work has now been replaced by you working on yourself. 
uh-huh. for you rather than for anybody else? I mean, I've, I've, you know, there's a couple of benefits. You know, it's been an extremely stressful year with mm-hmm. my work no giving up. Uh, on me, they want to, they made it clear to me, they want to discipline me. The way they treat me is a disgrace. Mm. Uh, I have to get legal advice. I've spent a fortune on legal advice just to make sure that they act appropriately with me. Mm-hmm. So that, had I just had but illness to deal with, I would be far further ahead than in yeah. August than I'm just now, but having that stress and stress and trauma of your employer being so bad towards you in this day and age, mm-hmm. um, it's just a disgrace. And knowing what I know now, you know, it's, I'd help anybody. Yeah. I, I know I would help anybody. And, you know, somebody was sitting across the table for me and needed help. You know, I've got guys that, that presentation I did to the army, mm-hmm. got guys, you know, who's, after it came up and spoke to me. And I said, here's my number, mate. Just start me a wee text if you just want to talk about in a football or you're having a bad day in the army or however it works in the army yeah. and I you know I drop my wee text at Christmas day and stuff like that and you know I, I think what I'm doing is just doing what people would do you know yeah. I, I know people help me and, I, and if I can help people by writing poems or even at, you know running a support group that are running mm. a Thursday night anyway I'll help MD and you know my employment is just a side issue just now that will need to be resolved at some point in the future mm-hmm. and hopefully it will but Right here, right now, I'm just trying to keep myself alive. And if I can do this and it helps other people, then that that's the reward for me. I'm not looking for anything out of it. And other than, as I said, if somebody takes something for you and thinks... Yeah, and I don't see how or, they can. So we'll get all the links up. You... I will have passed through it anyway. Oh, sorry, it's one of these ones we need to actually sort of watch ourselves with, or else we just sit here and talk all oh, night. Sorry, too. I, didn't I, didn't realize. I was just wondering what he was saying there. So was just I, know, I was just meaning, did you have anything else you wanted to cover? Well, I've got plenty more that I want to talk about, <laughs> but we just don't have the time to do it, man. Um, I, I'm incredibly grateful for you coming on and telling your story, man. Like Even just for me to hear it, never mind going out and maybe other people mm-hmm. listening. Um, what an incredible story, man. Like, I, I can't thank you enough for it. It's brilliant. Um, I'm, I'll put my hands up and say that I've not read, like, the, the blog or the book. Mm-hmm. I'm going to nice. sit down and read the book pretty much as soon as I get a day mm-hmm. off work. Nice. And, um, I'm going to go on the blog and have a bit. I thank you very much for coming on, man. Hi, Michael. Anytime you're getting promoting future, feel free to hit us up, man. You're welcome back anytime. I totally appreciate that. And can I just say thanks very much for inviting me along? And it's been a privilege um, to meet you guys and to give me an opportunity to kind of. No worries. About hopefully, you know. That's well your first one. Thanks so much. <laughs> Catch you next time. <laughs>